The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Industry, with tremendous opportunities for the young man. Industry, spurred by the march of science in all directions, was working at high pressure to supply those vital needs for which the people had hungered for so long. And we need chaps like you with a higher education to enable us, once we've trained you, to hold our place as one of the great detergent-producing nations of the world. <coughs> and now, before I take you and show you around the factory, are there any questions you'd like to ask me? You also make Frisco, which costs less. Uh, what is the difference between that and Detto, sir? Basically none. It's a question of packaging. Detto, as you see, has the larger carton, but they contain identical quantities. <coughs> Detto is aimed at the young housewife. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, August 1st, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our first show in August of 2013. 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call to reach us if you want to join in on the conversation. And I'm afraid we won't be hearing from Robert today because his subject is censorship and, well, he's just cut off just as a demonstration of his topic. You want to go home now, Robert? <laughs> I know you're not feeling right that bright today. You're saying you're feeling a little tired and exhausted, are you? Yes, well, there you go. And for my part, I'm going to be talking about the never-ending attacks on capitalism as I don't you know I'm not even sure if it's a system they're attacking you really wonder what people are getting at but it just is unrelentless or relentless rather not unrelentless <laughs> I'm just about to correct you yeah <laughs> you know uh, no matter how bad socialism communism or fascism get it's always capitalism that gets criticized have you ever noticed that whenever something doesn't work I have noticed that yes yeah, it's true and so everybody says, well, it needs to be fixed in some magical way that uh, is generally not very capitalistic, after which capitalism will continue to get blamed for all the non-capitalistic injustices and failures that occur after they try to fix it every time. And that's been a pretty much of a history. saw this article in the Free Press, uh, July 27th, Retooling Capitalism for the Social Good. Retooling, that's a title, can you imagine? Doesn't that say a lot right there? It's by Christia Freeland, who I find I'm criticizing a lot on this show lately. I've got to look into her a little bit more. Uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly where she's coming from. And the more I think about it, I think she's a conservative. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, th this, uh, I'm not that sure. sounds very conservative. You know, retooling uh, capitalism well, for the social that's, good. That's, that's very conservative. It took me a long time, but this thing... And she writes, you know, everything Marx told us about communism was false, the gag went. But everything he told us about capitalism was true. Marx didn't just get communism wrong. He was also profoundly mistaken about capitalism, which turns out to be the best prosperity-creating system humanity has come up with so far. Now, you with her so far? Makes well, sense. Well, she's accurate so yeah. far, but I know where she's going with this one. Next sentence. The high-tech, globalized capitalism of the 21st century is very different from the post-war version of capitalism that performed so magnificently for the middle classes of the Western world. Okay, she's lost me here. There you go. Now, Freeland then reports that Last, this is what it's all about. Last week, the state of Delaware approved a new form of incorporation. Have you heard of this? Uh, only what you've told me. The B Corp. And it's called a benefit corporation. Oh, no. <laughs> These are companies explicitly charged with a dual mission. Already, it's a failure. As soon as you have two missions, you're in trouble. To earn profits for shareholders, the traditional business goal, and also to pursue the social good in other ways, ranging from protecting employees to safeguarding the environment, even if these goals come at a cost of short-term financial gain. Wow. Now, I always thought every business ran that way. Every business protects the environment. Every business takes care of their employees or they're out of business. 
Isn't that how it works? But no, they, they, they think it needs tinkering. I they've incorporated the idea, though. They've made it a, a legal entity. Well, it already has been incorporated through contracts, hasn't it? Why do they need this? This is, what's, this is a con game, Robert. Delaware Governor Jack Markell was cited as saying, this is a very significant public policy issue. There is both a market need and a societal need. Read government need. Markle is looking for entre- entrepreneurs who are really focused on making money and who want to give back at the same time. <laughs> Push me, pull you. Yeah. Albert Wegner, a partner at Union Square Ventures, sees the critical challenge for capitalism today. Quote, our problem as society is no longer how to make more stuff. Cars, clothes, computers are all becoming better and cheaper. Instead, Wagner argued, our biggest remaining problems, however, require social innovation. How to distribute the benefits of progress more widely. How to live in better harmony with the environment and how to provide affordable access to education and health care for all, end quote. Frederick H. Alexander, the former chair of the Delaware Bar Association section of corporation law, said, The basic thing that underlies a B Corp is that you don't have to maximize shareholder value. You are accepting the possibility of a lower return. But for most of us today, that notion of voluntarily foregoing higher profits for the benefit of the wider community is, as Alexander put it, counterintuitive, end quote. What do you think of that, Robert? I think that we're witnessing uh, an abomination of the idea of capitalism. It is not capitalism they're talking about. This is not capitalism in any way, shape, or form. You got it. You know, it's a con game, and I said every, you know, I'm saying every single point and argument brought to the front in this article is evidence of it. Now, what did you notice missing? Freeland's entire article did not mention a specific point about anything in terms of how these corporations are going to work. Just what they want to do with the money, spend it on health care and all the usual stuff the government wants to spend its money on. Not a single example of what they mean, might mean by benefit, or whose benefit. At whose expense? Obviously, when they say the benefit society, they're not talking about benefiting the people who are working to create that benefit. They're disconnecting the producers of the benefit from the consumers of it. You see, that's what they're trying to do. And not a single example of what they might mean by a lower return. You know, lower than what? Lower than higher returns? (laughs) What do they compare that lower return to? Hmm, to the marketplace, to what's going on out there in a similar business, right? So why would you invest in a company that gives you low returns if your objective is to do social good? Especially when you could use the extra profit that you get from the business that you invest with with a higher return and do your own social benefiting. Sure. Right? That's how it's done. If that's your... Well, yeah. If that's what turns your crank. Well, what's a social benefit? What they mean is... uh, They don't mean social benefit. A social benefit is when you go out and buy something for yourself or when you just... I mean, social benefit. Social, that word can mean anything to anybody. It's like social justice. Define that, please. How's that different from regular justice or regular (laughs) benefits? And, you know, you could give it to your favorite charity or your favorite cause, but what it, why would you give up more money to do good for people if you had more money, you could do more good for people? <laughs> it's so contradictory on its very concept. So that's why I get really suspicious when I see that. The, the essay offers no answers other than a bunch of unfocused, illogical, and contradictory statements. Uh, but there is a very clear um, method to his madness. Oh, Enlighten me. Well, he's a statist. He okay. wants to rob, uh, rob people. Well, that's a given. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, but he's yeah. doing it uh, by using words uh, like capitalism and mm. social benefit, and all he's basically saying is that um, we want your money, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to redistribute it, taking well, a nice big cut for the myself. Thi- the, the thing here, though, is I'm not really sure what the particulars of this are. They're all calling it voluntary. You don't have to form one of these corporations. So I'm thinking, why would someone do that unless they're getting another benefit somewhere that they're not telling us yeah, about? Yeah, what is the benefit of these Class B? Yeah, why would I have a Class B instead of a Class A? There's nothing here in this essay that gives me any reason to want to do that. Well, not only that, I so mean, everything is... not being told. It's, everything is happening the way he's envisioning it now anyway. Corporations produce things, the government steals from the corporations, and redistributes it already. Yeah. If, they, if you want to do that, why not just raise taxes? Yeah, right. I don't get this. Yeah, you know, because that's an unpopular way of putting it. Maybe they're looking for something that's more like a, a voluntary tax, and they're afraid to call it that. And they're giving them some other kind of tax break. You know what I'm saying? So they can direct their taxes to something? It's, it's, there's something, something very not clear about somewhere. this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But, um, you know, this so-called capitalism that Freeland appears to be talking about, you're right, it isn't capitalism, Robert. But really, it's about business practices within an increasingly socialist world, not an increasingly capitalist world. That's ridiculous. You know, after admitting that capitalism is, quote, the best prosperity-creating system humanity has come up with so far, she says that the high-tech 21st century capitalism is very different from the post-war version of capitalism. Well, I don't know what she's talking about. It's very different today, but that's because what we have today isn't capitalism I think she, what she's confusing are the terms business, as you yeah. alluded to business, and capitalism, which is a political system where yeah. the government is not involved in the economy. You remember a few years back, I, I, I did a topic on the two types of capitalists and the two types of capitalism, mm -hmm. that, uh, and that really, you know, a lot of people talk about capitalism and capitalists as simple business practice a business practice that occurs in all countries, including socialist and communist countries. Russia always had its capitalists, right? They didn't have capitalism, mm -hmm. but they had capitalists. And that's business. That's, I just call that business, and I think it really muddles the term. You know, I can understand why. Marx is the guy who screwed it all up for us, because mm -hmm. capitalism should never have been named what it was. Well, he, he named it. He named it, right, <laughs> because he was opposed to it, so he put an ism on it, and now everybody's confused by it as a political system when it really isn't that per se. Well, you know, I driving yeah. in here this morning, I was listening to a show that's on every morning. It's called Happy Capitalism oh, with yeah. Lou Skeezins. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's only talking about business. Right. But in fact, he's he's talking about redistributive wealth and taxes and stuff like that, as if that's capitalism. Sorry, no, he's talking about business. You should be happy business. Yeah. <laughs> but it is capitalism, too, in the sense that, and this is why it's not totally inaccurate, that the feature of living in a free society is that you can accumulate capital. True and you can own it, ownership, right? So you can accumulate and save your excess earnings, right? That's something that a lot of people can't do in a lot of countries. Less so in this country all the time, too. When you get more than half of your money taxed away, how much can you save after that? And everybody then ends up counting on the government for pensions and things because they can't save it themselves and get better deals. Anyway, this is another, another issue. But after admitting, of course, that all this is capitalism is great and saying that it's changed, well... Capitalism has never changed. Capitalism is what it is. It's freedom in the economic realm, free competition, free trade, not government-imposed monopolies, prices, restrictions, either in labor or in business. As soon as you got that, you're not talking capitalism in the sense that Robert and I talk about it on this show generally. We're talking about the economic theory of capitalism as a political economic system, right? That's a different type of capitalism. We also talk about it as, as Rand would say, the unknown ideal. We're talking about capitalism in an idyllic sense. Yeah. I'm beginning to, to object to that unknown ideal. It is known, it just hasn't been too experienced. <laughs> it's, I think when she said that, <laughs> right. it's because it's unknown because to the vast it's masses out there. Sure. And, but anyway, it's never changed. We don't need to retool capitalism. We need to have capitalism. Have it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, retool, you're, that, that word drives me nuts. What a mindless term for an economic or political concept. Let's retool. Yeah, let's put in that, you know, put in a new tool there. Get a new screwdriver. <laughs> Every time you hear the word tool used by politicians, police, or economists, they usually mean the use of uh, force, fraud, deception or some other economic sophism, as the French economist Frederick Bastiat would have said. You know, they're always basically lying to you and using fraud, which he said was a misuse of the mind. That's mm. how he, he worded it. Uh, so this is not a B corporation. I call it a C corporation, a con game. They're looking for entrepreneurs who are focused on making money and who want to give back at the same time. So I guess they have to be multitaskers. Be selfish and be altruistic at the same time. You know, have they ever heard of Adam Smith's invisible hand? It's like they just threw that whole observation out the window with this essay and with this kind of thinking. You know, the fact is, in a capitalist world, and that's important, in a capitalist world, in that world we talked about, not the business world, the world where you have free trade, free exchange, that world, if you're making money, then you're earning it. And you're earning it by creating an affordable product for those who can pay for it and who want it. It's a win-win situation as long as that process goes. But when you introduce force into the equation, and force being like a market restriction brought in by law that's solely political, which is not capitalistic, then there's always a win-lose relationship that exists somewhere in the equation. You've just got to find out where it is. Sometimes it's hidden very well. But this doesn't seem to be what the authors of this notion are even talking about. 
Capitalism is primarily about economics. Social good, if it's being distinguished from capitalism, would imply it's something that's not economic. Like what? What would that be? Well, the examples they give are education and health care. Well, you need money to run those systems, so it's back to the money again, isn't it? Those are and businesses to me. Envi- and they're businesses. But inter- here's what's interesting. What do those two particular fields have in co- common, education and health care? They're run by the government. <laughs> so, you see, the capitalist system needs retooling to support these government systems that can't work no matter how many tools we throw at them, right? That's literally what's being said here. And they're, they're, they're monopolized by government either through direct ownership or and control, which is, that has a word, it's called communism, sorry if you're offended by it, or through control without ownership, which is called fascism. And by control, we're not talking about law and order, we're talking about... I think you got those two mixed up. Control without ownership? That's communism. No, that's fascism. They control your property and they don't own it. Oh, oh they don't they own, own it. it. Oh, sorry, yes. Oh, yeah, okay. No, you own it. I okay, I meant the government me. doesn't yeah. own it as compared to the other one where the government does own it. Ah, okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah. I, was, I was talking from the government point of view. Sorry. And um, so no matter how much money you throw at anything that's built on those systems, it can't improve it in quality or as a value. It actually becomes less value, valuable. I mean, if you've got to take money from people without their consent to pay for something, how valuable can that thing be if they would rather put their money elsewhere? You know, people can talk all they want. Wishing and doing are two different things. We're going to be hearing about that in a minute. But, you know, we always, we always hear about capitalism, too, as being for winners, just for winners, you know. Even Euron Brook, you know, he talks about, we all know about the win-win situation, like the one I just described. And that's from having the right to negotiate a, a price in a free market. But what people forget about, and Milton Friedman used to always remind us, that capitalism is a profit and loss system. Capitalism is for losers, too, and the losers are not the consumers in a capitalist system. The losers are the businesses who fail to, to provide the benefits and the social benefits for those consumers. But when the government keeps failing out, or bailing out, rather, failing enterprises with so-called stimulus money, the result is a loss of an, of, a, of an entirely different kind. Bailing out losing enterprises with taxpayer dollars is not capitalism. It's not even business doesn't even apply to both. And then, of course, there's the issue of profit. What is a profit? Why is a profit so bad? Why can't you make... Why can you not be efficient at what you're doing? Profit is a measurement of efficiency. Because in a free capitalist market, not in a, a control market. Economically, a profit's the opposite of a loss. It represents production. And it represents value created for all of society, not just the creator of the product. After all, without a society willing to buy a producer's product or service, there could be no product, product, profits, or social benefits, or even value in it. What value would it be if you couldn't trade it and people didn't want it and couldn't afford to pay for it, right? Now, in business, it's all about profits versus losses. When you hear governments talk, they don't operate in profit and loss, but they operate in the same principle, only they call it surplus and deficit. And the only difference between a surplus, you know, a surplus really is a profit on which no taxes are paid. And a deficit is a loss on which you can't write off against a business. That's all the difference is. If there were no income tax, the words deficit, surplus, profit, and loss would all be the same thing. But they aren't now because now one applies only to government and the other one applies to business, really. And, of course... To earn a profit, you only need to earn more than you spend in expenses. So you could have two, two companies offering the same product, same service, at the same price. One is losing money and one's making money. The government would penalize the guy making money, even though he's selling it at the same price. Oh, you're making money. You shouldn't be making so much money. Do less. Why is he making money? Because he's taking the effort to maybe cut back on expenses, to do with less, not you know, keep his business efficient. Governments don't have to be efficient. What we get there is high cost, no profits, nothing like that going on there. So prices are the controlling factor, but there's no such thing as a price in a non-capitalistic system. There are only costs. Costs which are always out of control because there's no pricing system. <laughs> it's a, you, you, see the, you see the chain. You can't get away from it, right? So how can you truly tell what the value of something is if people aren't permitted the freedom to choose it? By what measuring stick is that value determined? You just can't determine it. And I think that's where the whole problem lies in this whole thing. You can't fix capitalism. You've got to fix the thinking behind people who aren't behaving capitalistic. Now, coming up next, 
here's a couple of economic tales for you. Uh, one is about money and wealth, and, well, I guess they're both about money and wealth and economic thinking or non-thinking, and I'll talk a little bit more about these little fables we're about to hear right after this break. Sir, report coming in from Captain Karg on the hostile. On screen, Lieutenant. What is it, Karg? As I assured you, Kirk, this is not a Klingon vessel. It is a Federation ship modified to look like one of ours, but only on the exterior and in its weaponry. What's its origin? Asterian system. Captain, I think I know what's happened. Asterian is one of the systems with a shaky economy, hovering on the edge of collapse. But I don't understand. Asterian is known for their engineering and technological advancements. They're extremely valuable to the entire Federation. Absolutely. But they've placed primary emphasis on combat, devices, and inventions. In a Federation of Peace, they face failure on a planet-wide level because there's no use for their technology. And they've consistently refused to change directions or goals, even though it means their own economic death. Their philosophy is there will always be a war. All they have to do is simply wait for one. And if they could provoke a war between the Federation and the Klingons... A war would fuel their entire economy and make them more necessary to the Federation, but not to them alone. So long, Pop. Where you off to, Junior? There's a circus going on at the Coliseum. Well, in your present position, you'll never get there to see it. What makes you say that, Pop? Well, look at you. Oh, my gosh. I put the pony in back of the chariot. That's what is known as putting the cart before the horse. And while you're getting straightened out, I'll relate a fable illustrating that adage. But, Pop, I'll miss the circus. No, you won't. I'll make it short. This is the story of the three bears. I've heard that one. Charlie Bear and his wife, Edna, lived in a modest little home on the edge of the forest. One day, after taking in a movie, they returned to their abode and made a rather startling discovery. Hey, somebody's been eating my borscht! And somebody's been eating my borscht! I've heard this story, Pop. Quiet. Further investigation of the living room brought out another remarkable fact. Hey, somebody's been sitting in my Danish Type Chase lounge. Somebody's been sitting in my Danish Type Chase lounge, too. The mystery increased as they entered the upstairs bedroom. Pop. Hey, somebody's been sleeping in our Chinese modern Hollywood bed. Somebody is sleeping in our Chinese modern Hollywood bed. That someone turned out to be their rich Uncle Fabian. You heard this one before, Junior? Uh-uh. Uncle Fabian, what a pleasant surprise. Bah! You're only glad to see me because I'm rich. Oh, tut, 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 what a vile thought. Let me hold your wallet for you, dear Uncle Fabian, sir. I'll give you a wallet right on the head. Later that evening, over dinner, a surprise announcement was made. I have decided to put you two in my will. Oh, what a sweet thing to do. It sure is. Let me hold your wallet, huh? Now, there's only one catch. All my life, you know, I've been grumpy and irritable. Oh, you've noticed that, have you? Well, before I go to bear heaven, I want to be happy. Well, Charlie can make you happy, can't you, Charlie? Sure can. Let me hold your wallet. Early the next morning, Charlie attempted to make his uncle happy. First of all, he took him to the edge of the cliff. Look at that view, Uncle Fabian. Doesn't that make you want to smile? Bah! And Uncle Fabian pushed Charlie over the cliff. Well, did you boys have fun today? I did, but Uncle Fabian didn't. I decided not to put you two in my will. Oh, you can't do that, Uncle Fabian. Oh, of course not. Let me hold your wallet, huh? Say what? You've got all day tomorrow to make me happy. If you fail miserably, no legacy. The next morning rolled around, as mornings usually do. Now, this here is a golf club, Uncle Fabian, and that there is a golf ball. Now, you hit the ball with the club. Charlie fully expected that he would get hit instead of the ball, but incredibly enough. A hole in one! Oh, doesn't that make you happy? That's when Uncle Fabian took out his number two iron and beat his nephew unmercifully about the head. How's the head feel? Which one? Guess we're gonna finish out of the money, huh? Looks like, babe. Uncle Fabian was never to be happy, and Charlie and Edna remained penniless 
And so you see, son, never put the cart before the horse. I get you, Pop. Only there's a better way of saying it. Oh? Yeah. Never put the heart before the course. Never put the... Uh, let's go see that circus, Junior. Yeah, there's a circus for you. Now, there's a couple of interesting tales of economics and wealth. And if you didn't recognize that scene on the previous side of the bumper from what was obviously a Star Trek story, it's because that scene was never part of the original series. Uh, Star Trek New Voyages was just an online version of the Star Trek franchise and was actually a topic of discussion on Just Right way back several years ago. Totally fan-based. Yeah. It was fan all based, fans. And so some of them were so well done, too. And occasionally... Original stars from the from the series would show up. George Takei's been on it. Uh, Uhura and uh, the Roddenberry uh, franchise is yeah. there. It's not like they're doing this just on their own. You know. The, oh no, yeah. they got approval from yeah. Paramount as long as they keep the quality a little less than uh, <laughs> DVD quality. Well, quality. I think uh, yeah, some of the some of their special effects are awesome. Anyways, getting off topic, and of mm. course on this side of the bumper we just heard another Fabian tale, a Fabian tale. You like that? I do. <laughs> from another Rocky and Bullwinkle episode. Now. That Star Trek scene proceeded from an illogical premise, economically speaking, to an illogical argument and ends with an illogical conclusion. And that's led me to believe they probably didn't have any Vulcans around yet. <laughs> I don't know. From an economic point of view, kind of silly, but many, many people actually believe some version of that narrative. You know, the war is good for business argument. You've heard that one, Robert? Mm -hmm. Totally wrong. Yeah. And, you know... So they have this, this planet called Asteria in this episode, and it has a shaky economy, as they describe it. Hovering on the edge of collapse, they place all their primary emphasis on technological devices and inventions based on combat. And so in a federation of peace, they fail, face failure on a planet-wide level because no one has any use for their technology. And so she says, you know, they've consistently refused to change their direction or goals, even though it means certain economic death. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Does it have to be about war? Not really. Sounds like the green energy plans. Sounds like half of the scandals going on in this province, just the way government spends money in general. And, you know, they, the, their philosophy is that there will always be a war. Just wait for one, right? Or in, or in this case, they decide to start a war, which fuels their economy, quote-unquote. But, uh, you know, even Star Trek figured that out later. The Ferengi got that one right. War is good for business. Peace is good for business, right? It makes no difference to business. Business will be there to serve the needs of whatever it is. If a government has a need, business will be the, the thing that serves that need, just like anyone else. Now, there's that Fabian tale of the three bears from Rocky and Bullwinkle, which speaks more to a fundamental truth, I think. There's a truth about logic, that you can't put the cart before the horse. Or, in other words, you can't have a consequence without a cause. There's a truth about wealth and money, that nobody owes you a living and their money's not yours. The wealth you have is the wealth you earn. Whatever form it takes, which is not always money, but it is always about value. Things given to us, especially through entitlement, are always less valuable than those that are earned ourselves. Now, Charlie and Edna Bear in that, in that story sounded pretty well off, actually, which would mean that their coveting of Uncle Fabian's wealth wasn't really based on any big desperate need or hardship because they were described as a couple in a modest home, you know, eating their borscht, Danish-style, Shea Lounge, Chinese mad Madarin, Hollywood bed. I mean, why did they bring all that up, right? We're not exactly poor, but we want our uncle's money. And that's another truth about money. Money can't buy you happiness. Uncle Fabian is never happy, but he's always rich. And then finally, never put the heart before the course. You know, if your heart truly desires something, then you have to plan a course of action. You can't spend all your time wanting something or expecting an Uncle Fabian to provide you with it. You have to steer your own course towards your goals. And that's more a matter of process than it is a matter of the goal once you've set it. Establishing objectives and goals has to do more with decision-making. Achieving objectives and goals is about creating the process to do it and then actually acting on it. So, you know, freedom and capitalism are more about being conditions than about being end goals or objectives. They are both a living process, not some long, distant, you know, never-to-be-achieved end. You always hear promises, promises, promises from every socialist form. Socialism, communism, fascism. They all promise some future end, which they never achieve, because it's always been, you know, they always try it by means of plunder. 
And so you can't do that. Capitalism, on the other hand, is the means and the end. So, you know, that's pretty well all I've got to say about capitalism. Any other thoughts on that, Robert? At least on that issue? It, it's, it's funny, you know, walking up here today through the campus at UWO, I see how... Um, I was trying to look at look at people walking and, and thinking, how come the professors aren't wearing gowns? And you know, why is there no classes of people in our society today? We've achieved through capitalism, I guess, um, a lot of the ideals that the communists were fighting for a hundred years ago, and that is the destruction of the class system. Yeah. There's no classes anymore. You have rich people, but they're not a special class. No, classes were those cl things that were enshrined by the state, actually. Yes. You couldn't break through. In a the lords and system, ladies. There are still economic classes in the sense of you're, you can identify one. You're between zero and ten, zero and, you know, whatever. Yeah, but, but you don't have a class. You, you you're not, not stuck there. You're not arrested for not bowing down to Justin Bieber. That's right. <laughs> you know, even during this, uh, this the, just two minutes on this here, I got this in the mail during the, the, the current by-election from a group called SEIU, which I understand stands for, uh, it's a union, it's, um, they won't even put their name on it. Where did I have that here? I had that name here somewhere. But they're the International, uh, Employees International Union from the states. And they say here, healthcare is for people, not for profit. There's that argument again, right? And they're worried about how some candidates favor a two-tier system in which families need to show a credit card instead of a health card to get medical attention, mm -hmm. which is silly. You know, when a union objects to people using their credit cards for health care service instead of their health cards, what they're advocating is really the continuance of the progressive conservative government's imposition of a single-payer system, which is ironic to see the union behind a PC policy. Mm -hmm. And the single-payer being the taxpayer, not the patient. So in actual fact, the union and public health care advocates do not, want, do not object to you using your credit card to cover your health care expenses. They just want you to use that credit card to pay the money to them first, pay it to the government first. First, and then they'll pass it on to the health care provider, who is always a private entity, by the way, along with your rationing coupon. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's what you get. That's the difference between, you know, an insured health care and a free health care system. I mean, it's amazing. We have to understand capitalism if we want to benefit from it. That's all I can say. Enough? I think we're going to go into a clip uh, which talks about... About, about uh, doctors. And monopolies and, and concierge is, medicine. Yes, which is sort of like having your own... Like Michael Jackson had a doctor like that. Yes, <laughs> Although that didn't doctor. turn out too well for him, did it? <laughs> but still, is it the right of a doctor to do that? I think it is, of course. Same here. And we'll be back after this. The gentleman wants to know my opinion on the ethical correctness of concierge medicine. In other words, that's with a doctor charges you a large fee but cuts his practice way down and thereby promises you, uh, you know, rapid access to him, appointments that day, he'll go with you to the emergency room if necessary, he'll answer the phone personally. You get one-on-one -on -one personal attention but he only sees several hundred instead of several thousand patients and in order to make up for that he charges you a lot of money. I'm asking for my own selfish desire to hear you say what I already know. To, to have you put the ethical seal of approval on a free market solution that by all rights shouldn't need to defend itself. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I belong to such a uh, doctor's practice. The first thing I did when I came to California is go to this doctor and pay through the nose so that in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I phoned him at 11.15 about a symptom that proved to be nothing. If you have a regular doctor, you try and phone him at 11.15, I mean, they won't even answer the phone. You know, say, go, go right away to the emergency room. If you disallow or penalize this, you're turning doctors into serfs who have to see hundreds or thousands of patients they have no desire to see, sacrificing the kind of care and money they could make. Uh, seeing patients uh, that they want, and you're turning patients into cattle. And there should be absolutely no limit to what a doctor can charge and what services uh, he offers. It should be a free contract. Otherwise, have you ever been to an emergency room recently where they're required by law to treat anybody free? It's an 11-hour wait anywhere to get in because 
Every person that doesn't have medical insurance or money goes to the emergency room because they have a sore throat. So emergency rooms are dead. And if you make a doctor take, uh, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of patients, it becomes like it was in Britain. The guys that have a sore stomach, you take this, it's stomach medicine. You know, you have a, you're coughing a lot, here's some lung medicine. And then you're in and out, uh, it's the destruction of medicine. So we should applaud very selfish doctors. They're the only ones that are keeping standards up in medicine. That's it for me. There's an Italian fly in the Quebec language soup. The great sage Mordecai Richler wrote once answering a question from a friend in Los Angeles that yes, 15,000 donuts had been held up at Montreal airport because they weren't bilingual enough. While the still missed and always wonderful Mordecai would no doubt be edified to learn that years after his brilliant mockery of Quebec's tongue troopers, the silliness has not declined. In fact, it's evolved from unilingual donuts to parlous pasta. This is real. Buona Nota, a long-established Italian restaurant, has been cited for using Italian on its Italian menu. You know, offensive, exotic, really foreign, French-dominating Italian words like pasta, spaghetti, bolognese, even Italian cooks are such pedants. Using the Italian word for bottle when listing Italian wine by the Italian bottle. Consider this. Is it possible for a human being, equipped with an understanding arguably superior to that of an illiterate, untraveled turnip, to go into an Italian restaurant to order and enjoy Italian food and Italian wine served by Italian waiters, and then complain officially that the word pasta is on the Italian menu? The restaurant was facing having to take these Italian marinated terms, pasta and spaghetti, off their provocative menu. There was a review of the point. The very fact that there is a statutory body paid by public money whose members are not rolling around the floor throwing up from unstoppable laughter at the very idea of even reviewing whether pasta is proper is in itself a milestone in the lunacy of linguistic puritanism. Well, today, after much deliberation and more mockery, pasta on Italian menus is no longer under threat in Montreal. How strange it is. French, much like English, has a whole trawl net full of Latin terms, words entirely based on their early Roman Italian sources. French should only be half the language it is without early Italian Latin. It's not the best argument for Quebec's sophistication, its quite noticeable skills and the arts of good living, that some of its more zealous citizens are making them look provincial to the rest of the world. Richler would have seen this as another illustration of the bottomless folly of trying to police people in how they like to live, eat, sleep, and talk, of bullying for the higher cause. To borrow an idiom, it's all very hard to swallow that an Italian restaurant was under legal scrutiny for having pasta on its menu, and that there are any people in the sophisticated province who even in the delirium of political correctness believe this should be the case. Next week, by the way, I plan to ask the question, Chinese wonton soup, appetizer or linguistic time bomb? Tune in. For The National, I'm Rex Murphy. Oh, you know, man. Bob, you and I would have a field day I, I if we lived in Quebec. Now. <laughs> if we lived in Quebec, boy, we'd have a field day. We think we've got some silly politicians here in Ontario, but in Quebec, boy, they take the gâteau. That's just unbelievable. Anyway, you're listening to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM. You want to give us a call at 519-661-3600 to, to join our conversation or email us at feedback at justratemedia.org. Also go to iTunes and subscribe to our iTunes podcast of this show. 
I've got about 67 shows up there to date and adding more and more oh, going backwards so in time. we got so much work to do still on our site. I know, 67 out of 310. I'm, I'm adding them slowly but surely, but they're getting there. So go to iTunes and subscribe, and uh, you'll find our shows are great listening material if you're on those long drives. Anyway, the comical, keystone cop-like dealing of the Quebec government when it comes to the protection of their own language. Uh, it's one extreme of the more serious violations of freedom of speech we're seeing in Western society of late. If it's not banning the word pasta, as Rex Murphy was just talking about there, in Italian restaurants in Montreal, it's banning acronyms of startup businesses which sound too English. Javier Maynard, a 17-year-old who has started his own graphic design company in Gatineau, Quebec, was told by the Quebec language cops that the proposed name of his business, Wellark, had been rejected by the government for sounding too English. Ironically, the name is an acronym for, for, for the words web, language, uh, no, sorry, not language, langag, mm-hmm. logo, artistique, and compagnie. But the bureaucrats that even, uh, but the bureaucrats thought that even though it was an invented name, the first part of the acronym, well, was too English. And suggested he add a little French to the name, something like Designer Graphique Wellarc. Well, we, that'll be acceptable to the Registrar de Z- des Entreprises, or the Business Registration Office in English, but you'll never hear that. But then again, you'll not see French proper names translated into English, will you, Bob? No. Even by the English. We don't translate other foreign language place names or names. Um, kind of like Deja Vu. Although the French Quebecers, whenever possible, translate English names into French, the reverse is rarely the case. For example, the French-Canadian improperly translate my hometown of St. John's, Newfoundland, to Saint-Jean-Terre-Neuve. The history of that name and the possessive nature of the name have been lost in the translation. The original name was St. John's Harbour, named after, ironically... St. John the Baptiste, the patron saint of Quebec. It's been shortened to St. Saint, Saint John's, uh, sorry, to St. Saint Jean, with the apostrophe, I'm sorry, it had been shortened <laughs> to St. John's, with the apostrophe, which distinguished it from St. John, New Brunswick. But the French translation loses the possessive and confuses that city with the New Brunswick city. And as for Newfoundland, being bastardized into literally new land... They're even changing names of cities just to suit some linguistic something or other? No, no, no. This this has always been the case. French always translate place names to suit their language. Well, that's what I just said. Like, no, it's not to suit a law or but anything in, like that. No, 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 but, but in the sense of where you're actually confusing two places when they do have different names? Yes, they will do that. Oh, and they have goodness. done that. And this Jeez. is the point. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So they translate Newfoundland um, into Terre-Neuve, and of course that just means new land, so you lose the word found in the middle, which indicates the discovery of the new land, which was uh, the reason for the moniker in the beginning. It's a newly discovered mm-hmm. land. It's not new land. It's a newly discovered land. Yeah, it didn't just pop out of the ocean. So St. <laughs> John's Harbor, the, Saint, the harbor of St. Jean de Baptiste, uh, in the newly found land, has been changed to... St. John, new land. Just to satisfy the French, and, oh, no, we got to change that. We don't use apostrophes in our names. The English, you know, we, we refer, we, we refer to three rivers in Quebec as Trois-Rivières. No Englishman calls Trois-Rivières three rivers. We use the French name for it. You know, because I don't know why we do that. We respect, I guess, that that's the name of it. That's the name of it, Trois-Rivières. So we call it Trois-Rivières. Well, now you, you got into trouble with that one, didn't you? Are you saying there's some lack of respect going on here? Or is there some intent oh, to insult? Oh, I think there's a psychological problem going on. Yeah. There is a psychological difference between our two cultures people rarely talk about. I think it's indicative of English being more inclusive of other language and cultures, giving it strength and endurance as a language. I think that's why English endures and is worldwide. The stubborn refusal of the French... And I'm not singling out any particular French government or French person or anything like that. It just seems to be that this is a uh, an ongoing Phenomenon. characteristic yeah. of French people. 
their stubborn refusal to call English place names or proper names by their English names, I think, is a symptom of a combination of arrogance brought about by a deep-seated inferiority complex and an insecurity over the longevity of their own language. They're protecting a language. A well, language is, is something that evolves that oh. people have in their private... Or could it be something to do with just the culture itself, where maybe they're feeling, you know, they've been told a lot how oppressed they've been by the, you know, the monarchy and, and, and the British, so to speak. Maybe that's their way of protesting. It's not a hundred years war. This has been a 200 oh, years war. hey. <laughs> and while it might appear <laughs> comical... around the world, Robert. <laughs> it might appear comical to us that Quebec has a language police. It's no laughing matter for those businesses who have to suffer as a result and to the millions of Quebecers who do without the service of many businesses who refuse to set up shop in that province because of such fascist laws. Case in point, myself. When I owned a mail-order video business, I placed ads in the yellow pages of several Canadian cities. When I inquired as to placing an ad in the phone book in Montreal, I asked for the English-only section, please, as neither I nor any of my employees at the time had sufficient French skills to deal with French-speaking customers. I was told that I had to take out ads in both directories, the English and the French, by law. The cost was, of course, doubled, and the fact that we could not properly serve French-speaking customers was irrelevant to the Yellow Pages or to the Quebec uh, government. Hence, I did not advertise in Quebec at all, denying my products to that population. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. This kind of censorship... By the way, that, that happens to, to people in Ontario, too, because of official bilingualism. A lot of Americans will not market here because of that extra cost. Oh, you're That's, talking about Canada, not Ontario. Yeah, Canada. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And yes. I guess broad, broadly That's speaking. That's why when you yeah. go down to the States, you, it's not the differences in prices that people notice. It's the, it's the vast array of products that you can't get here. Right. And I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Now, this kind of censorship, which was permitted in Canada owing to our Constitution, is a violation of several individual rights, including freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and our liberty, which is never really talked about. But, of course, these are not respected in Canada. Canada, especially in Quebec. But we as a populace appear to tacitly accept some restrictions on our freedoms to the point that what we may think of as trivial, banning the use of the word pasta in an Italian restaurant, quickly expands to include jailing people for distributing pamphlets decrying homosexuality or reprinting cartoons of Muhammad in the case of Ezra Levant. And I say jail as it is. Uh, as that is the ultimate sentence for paying, not paying the fines imposed by the so-called human rights tribunals and commissions in this country. Banning restaurant speech has made it easier to ban political speech. And the banning of political speech or speech in opposition to religion has always led, in the end, to violence. And this is the case in the Middle East, and it'll be the case in Canada as well. We've already seen it come to violence in Caledonia, for example, where a person can't walk down a public road without being arrested by the OPP. It's a bad day in Canada, I say, when we have to have an organization called the International Free Press Society. It, uh, that just blows my mind, that in Canada we have to have an organization called well, the International Free Press Society trying to protect our freedom of speech. And know, uh, hmm. Sometimes I, I wonder, you know, some of these examples you pick, the pasta and the donuts and the spaghetti and all that stuff. Sometimes for the average guy it's hard to take it seriously. Right, you look at it and you go, they can't be for real. This that's can't my point, be for yeah. real. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's exactly it. And but if you're the guy on the front line who actually wants to try to sell you a donut, or who wants to actually make a living out of this, it is a nightmare. And we're sitting here laughing at it because it's so ridiculous that we can't believe anybody's doing it. But we have politicians that would actually think like that. To me, a person who could even think like that and do something like that to somebody is so antisocial. It is so repugnant. And it's so repugnant at its root that to even read about it, it, it doesn't even belong in the cartoons. It, 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 it's just, I just sit there and go, is that person human being? Is that a human being that's, that's, that's telling these people what to do like this? Can you imagine the I, owner I, of that just, restaurant and yeah. some jackbooted thug it's, it's, coming it's, in, telling him you can't have the word pasta on your menu? Yeah, I can. What I, kind I, of a I, bloody I, country we, do we live in? Well, we live in a country that has a law for everything that protects somebody's interest, and we don't have any laws to protect our rights anymore. And that's where the problem has come. People ha all people have conflicting interests. That's part of a marketplace. So you should never have a law to protect an interest. You should only have laws to protect rights. rights. And then you can exercise your own interests with already built-in limits to how far you can take it. I mean, I just find it obscene. 
Obscene is the good word yeah. for it, yes. Sorry. And I was talking <laughs> about the internet. No, that's okay, Bob. Yeah, passion. Let's hear it. <laughs> International Free Press Society. Yeah. Um, we know the people involved in that, and Al Gretzky is one of them, and he was the communications director of the Canadian chapter of that group. And last year... Yeah, he's a busy guy. Yes, he is indeed. He spoke about uh, our eroding freedom of speech to the organization Israel Truth Week. Mm-hmm. And I was there to record it. And uh, I just want to play you a part of that speech about uh, freedom of speech. Now, he's basically referring to freedom of speech in the Middle East, in Israel. But um, remember, he's part of the International Free Press Society Canadian chapter. And we have several examples in this country of our speech being eroded and people fearing to speak out because of government jackbooted thugs knocking on our door one day and arresting us or stopping us from speaking. And one of these days I wouldn't... If this continues on, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody knocked on that door over there, Bob, and said, sorry, your time's up. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's listen to Al Gretzky and the International Free Press Society. I am a member, as as was said earlier, of IFPS Canada. Uh, We are a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization whose mission it is to promote free speech through Canada and the world. And it is my belief that free speech is the pillar of free and democratic society. Now, knowing that and explaining that, it should not surprise you to hear me say that in my opinion, humble as it is, that the lack of free speech is one of the core reasons for the problems in the Middle East. I can hear the minds going, Wait a minute, Al, you don't understand. It's culture, it's religion, it's land, etc., etc. Yes, all of those issues are relevant. And all of those issues have to be dealt with. No denying that. However, all of these issues needed to be dealt with in complete and total freedom. Free speech, free thought, free association, etc., These items will keep coming up, and they will keep causing pain, they will keep causing suffering, they will keep causing death, until we can sit down and discuss these issues honestly, openly, in an atmosphere of trust. And if we don't, they will simply keep festering. Now let me explain why I see lack of freedom of speech as a central issue. Freedom of speech does not and cannot stand alone. For free speech is but one half of a very important idea. The the other half, or the other side, is rule of law. It is impossible to have one without the other. Let me give you some examples. In the Netherlands, a supposedly rule of law country, just ask Geert Wilders how his freedom of speech is doing. In England, the cradle of our democracy, just ask Tommy Robinson how his freedom of speech is doing. And here in Canada, we've got no reason to be smug, none whatsoever. Just ask Mark Stein or Ann Coulter. What do all of these supposed free countries have in common? Growing civil unrest from a lack of freedom of speech and rule of law. Like you, I see history repeating itself, where yet again, The leftist mass media has deluded the public into believing that all we need to do is capitulate. Just don't do anything. Don't rile anybody up. That's all you have to do. The time has come to fight back. Not with more lies, with something simpler, more beautiful. The truth. 
the truth. That was Al Gretzky, International Free Press Society, speaking at last year's Israel Truth Week, uh, which is organized by a, a guest of ours at one time, Mark Vandermoss. Mm-hmm. He had another Israel Truth Week this year, and let's hope that's a, an annual thing. Actually, let's hope that it doesn't have to be an annual thing. Anyway, Ed von Atticas in the booth, in the control booth here, has just reminded us that there was, that he can think of one example of where the French don't translate uh, the place name. That is London, Ontario. London, Ontario, apparently, to the French, uh, is London, Ontario. There you go. Even though apparently Londres, Londres, which is the French translation of London, England, Londres, Anglaterra. At least there is a distinction. It serves a purpose. Yes. (laughs) Well, there's one. Anybody else come up with another one? (laughs) Anyway, so that, um, quite simply, if one is not permitted to tell the truth, as Al was talking about, without fear of reprisal by the government, then the only recourse left open to him, I guess basically is to leave the country, or to resort to violence to effect change and regain and protect your rights. This is why it's absolutely imperative that any attempt to curtail any speech be stopped in its track. And that means if it's the expunging of the word pasta from a menu or whatever, it just... It has to be stopped at its uh, in the tracks, at its root. The banning of any speech, however trivial it may seem, or however you may disagree with it, leaves the door open to the banning of all speech, or speech you may agree with at some point in the future, because the precedent would have already been set. The government, if it is allowed to violate your right to free speech for viewing pornography on the Internet or elsewhere, will quickly learn that it can violate your speech of a political or religious nature as well as it already is doing. Censorship becomes a useful tool of governments willing to stifle opposition. It uses, its, its use quickly ratchets up in the scope of speech which is not allowed. Great Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron has uh, pushed the boundaries of censorship recently with a plan to filter pornography at the service provider level. Internet users must opt into porn in order to see it. He's doing it for the kids, of course, as most fascist rules <laughs> are. It's for the kids. That's why we're destroying your rights for the kids. What about their rights when they become adults? But in doing so, the result will be a database of citizens who the government knows views pornography. A handy tool to blackmail any citizen who might at some point in time want to oppose the government. There's a neat way, by the way, uh, around this violation of free speech, of course. All service providers need do is send out a blanket agreement change to their customers saying that their accounts will close unless they sign the new agreement. I've seen this before, mm-hmm. you know, and online especially. The new agreement, or with banks, the new agreement will have the provision that pornography will be available. If this is done by every customer, then no one person could be singled out as opting in to view porn. Everyone would have opted in as part of the agreement to be on the Internet. It's as simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Either take all our service or don't get any. Yeah. Why do we have to split it up for you? Yeah, it's like Google could just put Why a... Why can't you just turn a channel instead of us having to turn uh, a channel? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, Google, for example, if they say that Google can't... Uh, you have to opt in to, uh, to view pornography dealing with on Google, um, they should just put up a, a new agreement mm-hmm. there saying, okay, to use Google, you may be subjected to uh, pornography. Okay, click. I agree. Done. And if everybody has to do it, then no one's being singled out. Absolutely stupid on the part of David Cameron. Anyway, you're going to say uh, something about it? Yeah, I was wondering if he, maybe he's targeting poor parenting. Is that really his target? Maybe is that the, really his role? No, but maybe that's what he thinks it is. I mean, he's a yeah. conservative, right? <laughs> anyway, but that aside, it's absolutely disgusting that a government should place itself in a position as to dictate what an adult can view online or offline, for that matter. The act of censorship, to me, is more disgusting than the vilest form of sexual pornography this evil man, David Cameron, can think of. On July 20th, a member of the English Defence League in Britain was arrested for showing off a tattoo of a mosque in flames. The charge was on suspicion of using words or behaviour or displaying written material with intent to stir up racial hatred. What race, nobody knows, because, of course, Islam is not a race. It's a religion and a political ideology. Yeah, it happens all the time. But this ignorance on the part of the law is apparently no excuse. First they came for the pornographers, then those who spoke out against Islam, then the political opposition. It's a thin edge of the wedge, Bob, of the downfall of a society where governments censor its citizens. It's an act of violence on the part of government, and without the use of free speech, 
retaliatory violence will eventually be the result. Hopefully not tomorrow, but someday. Yep, you got it, Robert. Anyway. Yeah, I guess, see, we're getting cut off. Our free speech is getting cut off right is that, now. Is that you, Ed, giving us the finger in there? Okay. Something to do with the time. I don't know what it is, but we've got to go for another week. So okay. join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright As the election approaches, both candidates have been relying more and more on the support of their party leaders. Here to comment on the race is one such leader, the 42nd President of the United States, President Bill Clinton. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. <laughs> I'm here tonight because our nation is in the midst of a great crisis. People ask me who can propel America out of this economic freefall and put us back on track. And I tell them, Barack Obama is the only Democratic nominee for president. <laughs> that doesn't exactly sound like a ringing endorsement. I don't think I could be any more clear. I belong to the Democratic Party. Barack Obama's also in the Democratic Party. And I'm not a party wrecker. I love parties. 